Welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Church. This message is from our Renovate series, where we take a look at relationships through a biblical perspective and was recorded at our Menifee campus. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them up to Genesis 2. We're going to be in Genesis 2, 1 through 25. If you don't have a Bible, I believe we have Bibles in the back, so go ahead and just raise your hand, and David or Wes will get one out to you. All right, Genesis 2, starting in verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, when no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land, and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature." And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gion. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of the ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is the word of God. Thank you. Praise God. Well, um, my name is Eric Cobb, and I want to welcome you guys to Covenant Grace. We're uh, one church on two campuses. There's a French Valley campus, and then there's this one here in Menifee. We're just really, really excited you're here. Let's pray before we get started. Father, we come before you as children gathered around you, a good father, And we ask, Lord, that you would speak to us, that you would feed your people, that you would strengthen and encourage and give new life. 
Lord, for those who are here that, that aren't yet your kids, Lord, we pray that you would give them saving faith this morning, Lord, that you would draw them to yourself. We thank you so much for your goodness, Lord. As we look at this text, we can see your goodness written all over it. We pray, Lord, that as we leave here, we will trust once again in you as a good and generous and wise Father, Lord. Please change us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So here we are. We're going to start a new series um, this Sunday. We normally go through books of the Bible. We've been going through um, John for the last uh, six months. We're taking a little break here for two months. We're going to do a relationship series, and we're calling this series Renovate. And we're calling it Renovate because our God is a God of redemption. He's a God of renovation. And um, we live, though, guys, in a disposable culture, don't we? Uh, me and the family were at Walmart yesterday, you know? And we live in a disposable culture. We, when, when things that we have don't work out for us or they're not right for us, we just throw it away and get a new one. But our God is a God of redemption, a God of renovation, a God of restoration. And so, so often when our relationships get hard, we think of replacement for relationships that God wants to renovate. And so that's what we're doing here um, over this next several weeks is we're going to look at various passages throughout the Bible and just look at how God renovates relationships like marriage, friendships, um, parenting relationships. We're going to talk about our workplace, all those things. Um, but this morning, we're going to start in the beginning, right? We're starting in Genesis. We're looking at how did God design relationships from the beginning. Um, we're also going to look at how we wrecked it, how we made it go wrong, and then how God's going to renovate it. So first, let's start here with God's original design for relationships. Um, you guys have probably seen your fair share of like home renovation shows, right? We kind of binge these things. I don't know if it's healthy or not, but before you demo a, a, a something, a building or something like that, you need to know something about its original design, right? You need to know, like, for example, is this a load-bearing wall? Because that could come back to bite you later. Like, let's rip it out, and then, you know, it's sagging. Um, in, in Genesis 1 through 2, we see God's original design for relationships, and we need to see that before we see what the changes that need to happen. And we see in this passage that God designed us for relationships with himself and with each other. First, God designed us for relationships with himself. I love how it starts. Guys, Genesis starts with a happy God, full of joy, wanting to share his joy and love with creatures like us. Okay, God did not create the world out of a sense of need. I don't know if you guys have ever wondered, like, what about before us? God must have been lonely or bored, you know? You feel like that Tom Petty lyric, you know, you got lucky, babe, when I found you you know, towards God. And it's like, it wasn't like that. God is a trinity, right? He is one God in three persons. And so for eternity past, there was fellowship between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We are not better company than Jesus. We are not more interesting than the Holy Spirit. What we see with God is that he was not creating because he had some need to fill in himself. He had a desire to fill other people with his love and joy. And so he overflowed in creation. We see in, um, in Genesis 1.26 that he created us to bear his image. Genesis 1.26 says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, you see that plurality, and after our likeness. So he made us in his image. We're not just any old creatures, guys. We were created with the high honor and value of bearing God's image. You say, well, what's that? Well, in the Near East um, societies at that time, kings would put their images all over their kingdom. They'd put statues and inscriptions so that people could see, this is the king. Now, when God decided to do that in this world, he didn't do it with statues and images. He's actually forbidden that. He sprinkled the world with billions of people. 
And people were designed to be image bearers of God. They were, we were designed to be like little mirrors on us at a 45 degree angle. So that the glory of God, as it shined down on us, would shine out towards each other. We were designed to be these little mirrors that would fill the world with light. I mean, imagine if 7 billion people right now were doing that. Imagine if they were perfectly reflecting the, the love and the joy and the peace of their creator. If they were doing what they were meant to do as image bearers. It'd be heaven on earth, right? We, so we were created to bear his image. We were also created to rule. Take a look at the second half of uh, Genesis 1.26. It says that he was going to let, them, let us have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And then he blessed them and he sent them out to do that, right? So we were created as human beings actually to rule over creation as God's representatives. And we were called to do that not in a destructive way. We were called to do that as, a, as stewards as, um, as his uh, people in charge to care for creation, to manage it, to cultivate it into something beautiful. Obviously, we've not done the best job with that, but that's our job to do. After all, the first picture of our work was a garden, right? What do you do in a garden? Well, you don't just let it grow like crazy, right? You cultivate it. You know, you make pathways through it. You cut it back. You make it more fruitful. You, you build it into something beautiful. That's the work human beings were designed to do from the beginning, and in a few weeks, we'll look at work and we'll look how God created work good and how sins made it hard and how Jesus is redeeming it. So really looking forward to a message on work. Um, so we were made to be as image bearers, stewards over his creation, but also he didn't just create us to be like employees, right? He created us to be his children. If you take a look at uh, verse 7 and you see the way that God created the first man, um, Genesis 2, verse 7. God created us to have a relationship with him as children. And I love in, in 2.7 when it says, The Lord God formed the man out of dust of the ground, breathing into his nostrils the breath of life, and he made the man a living creature. I just love the intimacy of that. For everything else, he says, let there be stars, you know, let there be giraffes, all those kind of things, right? But then for human beings, he comes down, he gets dirty, he gets involved, and then I love how he breathes life into his nostrils, right? You've heard of mouth to mouth. This mouth to nostril. He puts life, blows life in. And you can just imagine God holding that first little man and being so excited about him. It's intimate, right? It's personal. And it says then in verse 15 of chapter 2, it says, The Lord took the man and he put him in the Garden of Eden. And I love how God just can't seem to leave him alone at that point. You know, he puts him in the garden and he keeps coming back because he wants to talk to him and he wants to help him discover new things and he wants to enjoy him and play with him and love him. He's like a new parent. He's not like, oh, made another animal, there it is. No, he comes and he wants to have a relationship. He just keeps on coming back. And then he teaches Adam his law. You look in verse 16. It says, the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may eat of any of the tree of the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat it, you'll die. That's generous, guys. God's law is generous. It's, it's generous now too. He doesn't say, hey, you can eat this one tree and that's it. He says, you can eat of any of them, just stay away from that one. That one's not good for you. Guys, God's law is generous. And so we were created to live in this happy, trusting relationship with a generous, joyful God. Isn't that beautiful? I mean, you can see, even as I describe it, you're like, yeah, that sounds so good. We can see how far we've come, right? Because this is a good relationship with the best being in the universe. And we were also created, guys, for a relationship with each other. Look at verse 18. The Lord said, it's not good that man should be alone. I'll make a helper fit for him. So it's not good for just to have one person. 
this person needs to have companionship. And we'll talk specifically about marriage, so we're not going to do that right now. I want us to look at this relationship of Adam and Eve through the lens of friendship first. Because, guys, the church is really a group of friends pursuing God together, right? And if we get friendship right, if we could be close, caring, skillful friends for each other, imagine the transformation that would occur. Imagine the Christ-likeness we'd see. And guys, marriage is really a covenant of best friends, okay? So before we talk about marriage and things like that, we need to talk about friendship, right? That's the basis. And you might say, well, my relationship, my marriage, we're not best friends. We want to get there. Like, that's God's design for you, and that's what we're going to talk about as we go further, is how does that happen? And you think about parenting. Ultimately, what are you doing? You're raising an adult best friend, right? At some point, this kid of yours, you want that kid to be your best friend. You know, you say, well, you know, I don't want to just make them my friends. Eventually, you do. You know, you're not going to be able to tell them what to do later and stuff like that. The only relationship you're going to have is it's a relational. It's not an authority relationship. We're going to talk about that in a few weeks. But even as I look out here, I see parents with children that are just like best friends with them. And it's so cool to see. We have that here. That's what we want to grow in in this series. Um, and so what's cool here, though, guys, is that God is the first to notice that Adam needs companionship. It's not like Adam's sitting there complaining like, yeah, it's great, God, but I'm real lonely. He doesn't do that. He doesn't even notice it yet. But God notices, and he says, not good. You know, God is good with that. God is good that you need friendships. God is good with it. It's part of his design of you. You're, he created us needy. Your need for friendship isn't a bug in your programming. It is a feature of God's design. And he created you with that because he is in himself a community of three persons in one God. And so he created you in his image to need and to desire those kind of friendships. And we see in Genesis 2 that he made this friendship between Adam and Eve. Um, if you look at verse 18, to be helpful. He said, I will make a helper fit for him. Our friends are to be our help. Our friends are to help us pursue God. He says here that he made this friendship to be complementary. It says in verse 18, I will make him a helper fit for him. You know, you think about a really good friend is fit for you. And it doesn't mean that person's your clone. You know, we kind of enjoy that, having friends that are just like us. But the best and most helpful friends are the ones that are a little different than us, right? That their strengths come through to fortify our weaknesses. And it's so good, guys, to be corrected by a loving friend that has differences from you, strengths in certain areas where you're weak. He also created this friendship to, to just take joy in one another. If you look in the, when Eve first appears on the scene in verse 23, Adam says, this at last. I mean, he's so excited. He's like, this is the friend I needed. This is the companion I needed. He didn't even know he needed one. And now he knows that he needs one. I, I love what St. Gregory said in the 4th century. He said, this is in the 4th century, 300s, okay? He said this, if anyone were to ask me what is the best thing in life, I would answer friends. Isn't that true? You have that really close friend, that really good friend, and that friend is at last. This is so, the person I needed. And then, I hope this doesn't get awkward for you. In verse 25, it says that he's made our friendships to be open, transparent, and honest. Okay, this is where it might get weird for you. Verse 25 says that they were naked and not ashamed. Okay, I hope this isn't weird for you. Um, in the context, that's about marriage, right? And we'll get to that a little further down the road. But isn't that the kind of relationship you want with your close friends? I will explain. To be, not to be physically naked, but to be fully known and fully loved. To be fully known and fully accepted. To be able to completely be honest about who you are and not fear rejection. Uh, Pastor Tim Keller says, to be loved and not known is comforting, but superficial. Isn't that true? It's like, oh, you're the best. Wait, you don't really know me. Yeah, I know, but, okay, superficial, right? 
Now, to be, and then he says, to be known and not loved is our greatest fear, right? To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But he says, but to be fully known and truly loved is well a lot by, like being loved by God. And then he says about being fully known and fully loved, he says, it is what we need more, more than anything. It liberates us from pretense. It humbles us out of our self-righteousness and fortifies us for any difficulty life can throw at us. Isn't that what you want? Do you want relationships where you're fully known and fully loved? That's the kind of relationships God desires for us as a church. As a community of friends pursuing God, that's the kind of relationship that he desires for us. That's the kind of relationship he desires for your families. That's the kind of relationship he he desires for your marriages. Um, and, And God designed it so that we would be that way, so that we would mirror how he feels about us. Because in the gospel, we're fully known and fully loved. Isn't God good? I just think as you read through Genesis 1 and 2, you're like, God is good. God is good. Now, let's answer this question. How did we get this so wrong? (laughs) Why is it now so hard? Because I know a lot of you guys are like, that's great, but in my world, right? What went wrong? Secondly, we looked at God's design of relationships. Secondly, we're going to look at the wreckage of relationships, okay? And that's here in in Genesis 3. Um, It all starts with a serpent. It all starts with a snake. Now, this isn't an ordinary snake. This is Satan. It all starts with a serpent and his venom. And his venom, guys, is a lie about God. That's the venom this serpent has. Take a look at verse 1, Genesis 3. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said, oh, well, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. But the Lord said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. Um, Guys, I'm a horse veterinarian, fair disclosure. Um, I'm a horse veterinarian, and uh, about a week, two weeks ago, I was treating a a horse for a a snake bite, rattlesnake bite. So beware, those of you who opt outside, be careful. Um, But uh, I was treating, and the weird thing about horse bites, uh, sorry, horse bites, rattlesnake bites on horses is that horses can't breathe out of their uh, mouths. They can only breathe out of their nose. So if they get bit on the nose and the nose swells, they're dead in like an hour or two, which is risky, you know? So you don't want to put your nose down around your horse. And so I ran out there right away, and it was swelling. It was probably like an hour from dying. And um, you take these plastic tubes, and you like shove them up their nostrils so they can breathe. They love it. And then you suture it in, and they can breathe. So I was treating this thing, and then I went on Google, and I was looking through like other, other rattlesnake bites, and I was looking for other, how other people had treated them, just looking at pictures and stuff. And I saw a bunch of pictures of people bit by rattlesnakes. It's awful. It is so disturbing. I mean, arms that are this big is splitting from the pressure. I mean, nasty, okay? I have some. No, I'm just kidding. We didn't. <laughs> I've done that before, so they're like, oh. But you know, guys, the venom in this serpent in Genesis 3 is far more destructive than any rattlesnake bite. Because the venom of this serpent is a lie. And it's this lie that maybe God just isn't that generous, good parent we thought he was. Maybe he's not worth trusting. Maybe he doesn't really care about my joy. Maybe he isn't really after my good. And Adam and Eve believed this lie, and the serpent bit that venom deep into their souls. And I just want to ask you guys, have you ever doubted that the commands of God are good and generous and for your joy? Have you ever, have you ever doubted that maybe they're, maybe they're not the wisest thing? Maybe they're not the thing I need to do right now to get the happiness that I want or to solve my problems? Have you ever doubted that? Of course you have. So have I. We've all been bit by the serpent. We all have to deal with that venom. 
And so Adam and Eve disobey God because they're in their hearts, they no longer trust God. They don't trust that God wants their joy and they seek happiness with the enemy. Take a look at Genesis 3, 6. It says, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight for the eyes and the tree was desired to make one wise, she took the fruit and ate it and she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate and the eyes of both of them were open and they knew they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Guys, sin is unraveling. It unraveled our relationship with God and unravels our relationship with each other. And you can see that relationship with God unravel in verse eight. It says, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. And you just think like, how was it before this? God would come and he would enjoy fellowship with them and they would enjoy fellowship with him. Would have been like when a dad comes home to their little kids, comes home from work and all the kids are so excited. Like, dad's home, ah! That's, I'm sure that's how Adam and Eve were. They would have run, they would have jumped all over him if that's possible and just gotten all excited he was there. But what do they do? God calls out, where are you? And, and Adam says, I heard the sound of you and I was afraid because I'm naked and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Guys, they used to rejoice at the coming of the sound of God. And now they're hiding from him in guilt. And then we see the unraveling of their relationship too, right? This sewing of fig leaf, you know, clothes and seeing that they're naked. They're hiding their shame from each other too. This guilt that they have of their sin is causing them to hide from one another, to not be transparent about that, who they are, and not be honest about who they are. You can see them closing in. You can see, too, that their guilt led them to blame shift with each other. You know, God, uh, the man's asked by God, you know, what have you done? And what does he say in verse 12? He says, the woman that you gave me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. What's he doing? He's blaming her, right? And this is what we do. We feel guilty, and so we try to justify ourselves by pointing out the sins in other people and, and blame shifting. And we can see that clearly in families, right? Where it's, well, you did this, well, you did that. Well, that wouldn't have happened if all the blame shifting that happens, right? And we see anger and wrath between the husband and the wife in this. These friends, they were such good friends, and now you see anger and wrath. You say, where do you see the anger and wrath? Do you guys remember what God said would happen if they ate the fruit? He said, you'd die in that day, right? Then God comes to Adam and says, what did you do? And what does he say? Kill her. Isn't that dark? He's like, she's the one that did it. It's death penalty. It's dark. There's wrath. There's anger. There's, um, there's animosity. These people who were, they were the best of friends are now the worst of enemies. And as they leave the garden, they're cast out and they're under the threat of death and they go away from the presence of God. Imagine what that did to their relationship. I mean, you guys who are married here have definitely fought over like bad, foolish purchases and, you know, what did you spend all this money at Target for? Imagine the, the argument about who was responsible for losing paradise. This could go on the rest of their lives, and I'm sure it did, right? It's your fault. No, it's your fault. Well, if you wouldn't have done this, well, you were supposed to lead, right? You can just see it. And Genesis 3.16 says that there would be a conflict between husbands and wives, so these two, they were created to be best friends, and they had it, and they lost it. They left the garden the worst of enemies. And I'm just thinking about how many times has that happened? I mean, even in this room, friends, close friends made enemies. Sin creeps in. Brothers and sisters, um, parents and children, husbands and wives, close and then fractured. And, and, and what's worse is they feel stuck that way. 
You know those guys, they didn't have any kind of a sin nature before that. So when they leave the garden, not only do they have all these relationship problems, but they have this, this thing in them now that's broken, this sin nature, where they keep on falling into the same sin patterns over and over again. And every time they try to fix their relationship, they wreck it. Every time they try to love each other, they wreck it. And Genesis is a record of that. We see that Adam hands down this anger he had towards his wife. He hands it down to his son, right? And you see those first two boys, right? One of them, Cain, inherits that anger from his father and kills Abel. And then you know, guys, that that continued? When you look in Genesis 4.23, you find this guy named Lamech. This is Cain's great, great, great grandson, Lamech. And you hear him boasting in Genesis 4.23. He gathers his wives together. And this guy is so filled with rage and anger. I mean, he sounds like something out of the Godfather movies, okay? This is what he says. He gathers his wives together. And he says, Edda, Zilla, hear my voice. You can read it. It's right there. <laughs> hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I've killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. And then he says, this is creepy. He says, if Cain is revenged sevenfold, Lamech is revenged 77 It's like, this is magnifying. This is escalating. This is generational enslavement to sin. This is what we've been handed down. And and it's handed down by nature and nurture, right? You know, we show it and we inherit it. And then you see this pattern through Genesis. I mean, Genesis is a mess. You got controlling in-laws. You got jealousy between brothers and sisters because of their parents' favoritism. You've got all kinds of jealousy and bad things happening because of infertility. You've got spouses fighting with one another and blaming each other. You have lying and stealing. You have adultery. You have incest. You have murder. I mean, this would not be a family-friendly movie if you made it, you know? This isn't a movie you'd let your kids watch. It's a soap opera. Guys, this shows how much relationships have fallen and been affected by the fall. And, and this is important for us to realize as we start this series. And we're not starting with Genesis 2, right? We're not starting with a blank slate. Because you guys could wonder, like, you think about your marriage. You think about some friendships you're having a hard time with. And you could think, is this just me? This is hard. This isn't you, okay? This is the fall. This is what it's like now to try to love one another on this side of Genesis 3. We have to be really realistic as we pursue that. And it's also important, guys, as we see these problems, that we see that they're really just a reflection of our problem as a humanity with God, right? Because we're made to be reflectors, we reflect that damage. We reflect that to each other. I mean, our biggest problem is not the wreckage of our relationships, it's the wreckage of our relationship with God. I mean, sin's put us under God's wrath. Sin has put us under real guilt, not psychosomatic kind of, real guilt, It's put us under enslavement to sin. It's made us enemies with God. I mean, you look at the end of Genesis 3, and they couldn't be more doomed, could they? Under God's wrath, guilt, um, they're enemies of God, and inside of them, they're wired to keep on rebelling. Like, this is a mess. But God, right? But God is a God of renovation, isn't he? I love this. I love how God responds to this problem. It's amazing to me, actually, that God doesn't just huck this in the trash and start over. That's what we do, right? That's what we do in our disposable culture. We go, well, that didn't work. Kick that into the trash, right? And we do that with our relationships too. Well, that didn't work. Let's throw that away. Let's start fresh. But God doesn't do that. Even though it's gonna cost him way more than anything we have will ever cost us, right? Think of what it's gonna cost him to redeem this. And God, guys, God's desire to renovate and redeem is part of his glory, 
I, um, I had a ride along with me when I was, uh, as a horse vet, I was driving around, and I had this uh, 14-year-old kid that was riding along with me. And it was a favor of one of my clients because this was his nephew, and his nephew was a 14-year-old atheist, super smart atheist, which was really interesting to have with me. And he's like, take him with you for the day, and let's just see what happens, you know? <laughs> you know, so I did, which was great. And he starts off, like, really quick after breakfast, he has the question, well, why would God create a world he knew would break? And I'm like, okay, let's start with easy ones. And, um, and I said, uh, well, that's a softball. We'll move to the harder things later. And I said, um, well, you know, I think God ultimately does what he does for his glory. And it must be that God's glory is displayed more in a fallen world being restored than him having a world that never needed restoration. So that was my answer. I felt good about it, you know. And then he goes, well, that's dumb. He's 14, you know. He says, well, that's dumb. He goes, letting something break just to fix it, like, that seems dumb. And I'm like, ah, well, we'll keep driving. So we kept on moving along. And what was really cool is that God was after this kid because a few calls later, we pull into this client of mine's place um, up in Quell Valley, and he has this restored truck, and it's this red 1950s, just amazingly fully restored, beautiful pickup truck. And this kid's drooling all over it, you know? He's just like, oh, this is amazing, you know, and all this. And I said, yeah, it's really cool. I mean, he... Uh, it's his hobby, you know, he restores these old, rusted, broken down trucks, you know, and stuff like that, and he's all, oh, that's really cool, and then I was like, yeah, isn't it so much more impressive that this guy restores these broken down trucks? I mean, he could just buy new ones, right? He was annoyed, <laughs> but, he, but he got the point, and it was just like God was setting this guy up. It was so awesome, so how did God restore our wreck relationships with him? Take a look at Genesis 3.15. It's a hint. It's not real clear, but in Genesis 3.15, he's speaking to the serpent. He's speaking to Satan. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your heel and you shall bruise, sorry, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his, his heel. How he's going to fix or restore this is through a child. He calls it a seed of the woman. That someday a child would come and he would grow up and he would be the one to somehow be wounded by the serpent but then deal the serpent a worse blow. You see the serpent gets it on the head, he gets it on the heel. This is a pointer, guys, to Jesus' death and resurrection. He is that seed of the woman who had crushed the serpent's head. He's the one that died but was raised again. And he solves our guilt problem. Let's just go through the problems. He solves our guilt problem. Philippians says that by the cross, Jesus took our guilt. Our guilt was placed on him. That guilt that makes us hide and blame others was placed on him. And that now we have his righteousness as a covering. Philippians 3.9 says that we can be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of our own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. You guys remember when, when Adam and Eve were forced out of the garden? Before they left, he didn't just send them out naked. He didn't send them out in their lame fig leaf speedo thing that they were making. He killed animals, right? And he took the skins and he put them over them. And what he was showing them is that you need a covering. You need a blood covering. Somebody needs to die to cover you. And so just, and it's a picture of Christ, right? The Lamb of God who was slain and died in our place. And just like Adam and Eve wore those skins out to cover their shame, you, if you're trusting in Jesus now, are covered by Christ's righteousness. You're covered. You know, you don't, and now you can be honest about these things. Um, what about the wrath problem? On the cross, God's wrath, his holy anger for your sin. You got to capture this, is that we are not just guilty before God outside of Christ, but we are under his wrath. His holy anger 
is pointing directly at us. It's hanging over us, according to to, uh, John 3. His wrath, his holy anger, and it's legitimate. It is completely legitimate. And it says uh, that on the cross, God's wrath was redirected to Christ to give us peace, right? Um, What about the sin nature? What about the way that we're wired to constantly be you know, sabotaging our own relationships. It says in 1 Peter that his blood was shed on the cross to buy us out of slavery from sin. And what about the fact that we're enemies to God? It says in Ephesians that though we were by nature children of wrath, people say, well, everybody's God's kids. No, there's God's kids and there's children of wrath. Okay, he says we are by nature children of wrath, but we've been turned into his sons and daughters. Isn't that amazing? Isn't it amazing how many, and I could list other things that the cross accomplished. It's amazing how he solves all these problems because you look at it and you think this is a disaster. He solves it with one beautiful sacrifice. And guys, discipleship is about learning how to live in that, learning how to apply that, learning how to really believe and appreciate that and apply it to your lives, especially your relationships. And you know what, guys? It works, okay? It's not only cool, it works, okay? And I want to show you. Take guilt, What if it really sank into you today that your sins, your very sins, are covered by the righteousness of Christ? If you really believe that, and we vary in our belief of that, but if you really believed it, imagine how your insecurity would fade away. Imagine how you'd stop hiding your sin from others here, from these people that you want to be your closest friends. You'd stop hiding it. Like 1 John says, you'd walk in the light, and we'd have fellowship together. You'd stop feeling like you need to blame other people or point out their sin or things like that to make yourself feel better. Guys, we can own our sin when we see that Jesus owned it for us on the cross. We can own it. We can eat dirt and say, yes, I did this. This was wrong. We can do that because we don't fear. What about the wrath problem? Imagine how your wrath would lose fuel if you really saw that the wrath of God was poured out in Jesus for you. Imagine how you say, my wrath, yes, your wrath. Okay, there are a lot of angry Christians. Would you agree? There are a lot of angry Christians. There are a lot of angry Christian homes where parents are seething in anger and resentment toward one another, toward their children, um, kids being in resentment towards each other, seething in anger, guys. Where does that come from? Where do all the angry Christians come from? They're Christians who are not really believing that the wrath of God was coming for them and that Jesus absorbed it. You see, as Lewis says that, To be a Christian, check this out, to be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. Is that what it's about? He said to be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable. You say, well, that's inexcusable. Exactly. To forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. What about this whole sense of feeling stuck? I mean, I feel this one, don't you? This sense of feeling stuck. What if you believed, really started to believe that you were no longer doomed to keep sabotaging your relationships, but that Jesus could set you free? Take a look at 1 Peter 1.18. It's beautiful. In 1 Peter 1.18, Peter says this, you, and that's you, were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. Remember Genesis and that just handing down of sinful patterns by nature and nurture? He says that you are ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. You can make that more personal. Like Maybe you're thinking like, I don't know that I'll ever have good relationships for generations. My family's been a disaster. You were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. How? Not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus that Jesus' blood has so purchased you out of slavery to sin that now you can learn to walk in freedom by the power of the Spirit. What if you really believe that? If you really believe that, this is what you do. 
You would not make a list of your spouse's problems. You would not make a list of your friend's problems. You would make a list of all the ways you need to change and how you relate to other people, and then you would start seeking God to make it happen. Because you'd believe it could happen. And you know what? It can happen. Like, that's what that passage says. I mean, that's what it says. It's talking about now, in this lifetime. And, and that's what renovating relationships really means. Because you might have come and thought, you know, I need to bring my wife here. I need to fix her, you know? <laughs> renovating relationships is about renovating your responses, your heart, by the Spirit, so that you begin to be a difference in your own relationships. What about this friend-enemy thing? You know, that our, our friends start to become our enemies, how much more willing would you be to reconcile others if you were rocked by the reconciliation you have with God? Have you ever thought about this? You were God's enemy, according to Ephesians 2. His enemy. You, little old you, little old grandparent you, or work in retail you, or in school you. God's enemy. I mean, talk about picking a fight you can't win. You picked a fight with God. And I hate being an enemy of anybody. Do you have that bad feeling like, I'm more prone to be a people pleaser and stuff, so I don't like anybody not liking me, you know. Even Al-Qaeda, you know. Like, <laughs> they'd like me if they met me. I'd be like, I'm kidding. <laughs> kidding. But God, I mean, imagine that God's your enemy. That should bother you. I mean, if you're here today and you're not a disciple of Jesus, the first thing you should do is be extremely afraid. You know, maybe you came in here and you thought, oh, I have this problem or that problem. Your main problem is that you've made yourself an enemy of God. And then the next thing you should do is trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. It's that simple. You come to Christ, you trust in him, you get his righteousness, and then you're his child. And so talk to us about that. I'd love to pray with you afterwards. But for those of you who are disciples of Jesus, you were his enemies and now you're his daughter or, or his son. You are fully known and fully loved. God actually takes joy in you the way Adam took joy in Eve when she first came on the scene. Finally, at last, God takes joy in you in that way in spite of your sin. Your sin is covered. Zephaniah 3, and I know you guys are doing lots of studies in Zephaniah. Zephaniah 3.17 says, The Lord your God is in your midst, mighty to save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. And then listen to this. Think about God doing this for you. He will exult over you with loud singing. Remember back in Genesis 2 when he just couldn't like leave those people alone? He's like, God, come here, I want to talk to you. He's like that again with you. He rejoices over you with loud singing. Imagine how that turns enemies to friends when they really get that. And it did in the first century. In the first century, we have a record of natural enemies, Jews and Gentiles, and all these people that were natural enemies becoming families because they really got this. They really believed this. And it's doing the same now by the power of the cross. And, and so that's what we want to look at in this next um, uh, two months, is we want to look at how the gospel and the power of the Spirit plays out in all of our relationships. And, um, and I, I just want to close with this, guys. We're six months here. So we're six months in this room. And, um, and it was just a group of friends wanting to come together and see God redeem this area. And um, we're kind of thinking now we're going to go public with this. We're going to let people know about it. Um, we think we have most of the bugs worked out. Now, keep in mind, this is coming from a church that two weeks ago couldn't get in their building. But <laughs> we think we have the bugs worked out. It's coming together. There's a lot of blood, sweat, and tears, lots of tears uh, that have been shed. But we want to really let the community know we're here. And so that's why we've given you guys these cards here. Um, we're going to hit the neighborhood and kind of invite people that are around in here. 
Um, I know that some of you come just because you saw the sign and stuff, which is great, and social media and stuff, but we're going to start inviting people because we have a huge opportunity in this series, guys, to be changed personally and to invite others to change. And so here's the things I'd say, like, as kind of a, this is what you should do. First, I'd say pray for an open heart, okay? Because as you listen to these things over the next few weeks, it's very easy to say, man, I wish my brother was here. Or, man, I hope she's listening, okay? Come with an open heart. Pray for an open heart. And then I'd ask you, be here. I think that's important. <laughs> and then thirdly, invite people. We got these cards for you guys to invite people. Invite them however you're going to invite them. And then, guys, pray that God would work in a way we never expected. You know, he's done in the past. It's amazing what he's done so far. But, guys, this is a good time for us to push ourselves. It's a time for us to change. It's a time to believe God's going to work. Let's pray. Father, we... Uh, that was a lot of ground to cover, Lord. Um, huge part of Genesis, huge part of your design, and, and then the mess we've made of it, and then the way you're making all things new. Lord, we love what we see. I, I love what we're seeing of you in this passage. The heart you have for us, the desire you have for us, that your love doesn't stop, it doesn't give up, you keep pursuing us, why would you pursue us? And Lord, I just pray for those who are here that you're in hot pursuit of, and they've come here not by accident, Lord. You want to intercept them, and I just pray that you do that this morning, maybe during this time of worship, maybe the time of fellowship, maybe it's already happened. I just pray you draw people to yourself. And for those of us who are your children, who you delight in, help us to see that. We don't see that. Lord, the, the effects of sin make us doubt your goodness. The effects of sin make us question your love for us. Lord, help us to see afresh your goodness. As we sing songs about how you're a good father, Lord, we pray that we would do it from hearts full of belief in that. And I thank you for all these people. I pray you bless them today. I pray over the next several weeks that you would bless all of their relationships, Lord. Lord, we pray you'd renovate us. We all need it, Lord. We need you. We pray that you would fill us again. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Church, Menifee. If you would like to know more about the Menifee campus, visit us online at covgrace.org slash Menifee.